and welcome to Evaluand, a podcast about the land of evaluation between you and me, your host, Dana Linnell Wanzer. This is the show where we interview people about any and all things evaluation related. So this week I'm chatting with Aisha Rios. We met on Twitter at some point, I don't remember when, but we really got to know each other a little bit better through the recent AEA virtual experience and uh, the subsequent the watch parties that I hosted afterwards so that we could, one, watch some more AEA sessions because there were so many good ones, but two, also try to get away from the election a little bit. I hosted them right at the election, which I'm so glad I did because it was a really stressful time. So I wanted to get an opportunity to talk to Aisha more and find out more about her business, Coactive Change, to talk about how she embeds social justice in evaluation and what better way to do that than via podcast. So without further ado, Aisha, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dana. So nice to be here. I'm excited to talk. Yeah, thank you for being here. So since part of this episode is to get to know you a little bit better, I wanted to start off with an easy question. So can you briefly introduce yourself and your company, Coactive Change? Yes, my name's Aisha Rios. I use she, her pronouns, and I founded Coactive Change in March of this year. In that role, I am a learning and change strategist, which means that I work with change agents which I've broadly defined as anyone who is working actively or aspirationally to advance change, dismantle systems of oppression. And so I am doing that through both evaluation and learning services, as well as capacity building support. And I really like to lean into collaborative and participatory approaches to evaluation. And then I'm also doing some work around what folks call JEDI or DEIJ and anti-racism consulting as well. Wow. Leaning into my background in anthropology through that work. Yeah. And I definitely want to get into that anthropology in a second. What, what kind of like learning services, like how do you differentiate evaluation from learning in the services that you provide? So for me, I think about the fact that I really, and I, I lean a lot into my anthropology background in this way. So for me, it's really critical to center learning from a wide array of stakeholders with diverse lived experiences and expertise. And so for me, it's about really collaborative learning with other people with that range of lived experience and expertise, rather than myself kind of coming in as the expert who knows how to design the evaluation and knows how to run the whole aspect of all the aspects of the work. And so for me, it's really about leaning into the knowledge and expertise of those I collaborate and partner with. And that makes sense why you have a participatory approach then in that regard. (laughs) (laughs) So how did you come into evaluation? So uh, my background's in sociocultural anthropology. So I uh, studied that in undergrad and then also in grad school, I got a PhD from Temple in Philadelphia. And so Temple does a really great job of producing applied or practicing anthropologists who work with nonprofits and the policy sector. And so I always knew like by going even to that program that I didn't want to work in academia, but I wasn't sure what that would actually look like. I actually took an evaluation course in grad school and actually hated it because (laughs) (laughs) it was so structured and like, 
this is how you do evaluation. You follow these set steps and that's all there is to it, which is very, which is very different from my training in anthropology and ethnography, right? Where yes, you have research questions going into the field, but once you get there, you listen to people there on the ground about what's important to them and what they value. And that means inevitably your questions shift. And so for me, going in with a set approach felt like did not feel good. And so I just finished my PhD program and was looking for opportunities, <laughs> leaning into my networks and in a very serendipitous way, found out that there was a project with CDC's Division of HIV AIDS Prevention that was, a, they were trying to do something really qualitative and exploratory, which was very different from what DHAP, Division of HIV AIDS Prevention, typically was doing at that time. Mm. And the branch chief was an anthropologist. And so we really hit it off and they were looking for someone on the consultant side to co-lead with them. And so because I had a background in anthropology, I could demonstrate, okay, I have the skill sets, even though I don't have an evaluation degree to do this work. And so we embarked on a two-year journey, a really emergent qualitative project where we were, um, they wanted to understand the impact of the national HIV AIDS strategy and CDC's high impact prevention, the impact that was having on HIV prevention programs on the ground. And they had no clue. And so they, we, we built a design that really had a very open exploratory set of questions to guide the work. And we shifted and built upon those questions over time. But I remember, you know, when we were first setting up the approach and like designing the protocols, there was a lot of hesitancy, like, oh, this can't really work. Like if you ask a really open-ended question, we're not really going to capture a lot of rich nuanced information. And they were very pleasantly surprised, you know, around how much we learned on that project. So it was a really exciting really exciting project and opportunity to shift the way they did evaluation within that division. Wait, so they thought you wouldn't get a rich data by asking a broad open-ended question? Yeah, because they're so, they were, um, like a lot of their work was really focused, like it was just more, more quantitative oriented, you know, and uh, set to having kind of really structured questions. And so they, yeah, they, they had never experienced an open-ended interview or conversation. And so, which, you know, I'm even now when I interview people, people say, oh, I can't talk for an hour. And I'm like, oh, you can. <laughs> Trust People me. love talking about themselves. Yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And people have so much like beautiful knowledge and lived experience. And so it's, you know, yeah. So uh, how did you reconcile that bad experience you had in grad school, which I'm actually curious, what department was that in? Was that, it wasn't in an anthropology No, it wasn't. You know, that's a good question. I don't know the department. I, I do not remember that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Because thinking about like how other disciplines, so I don't know enough about anthropology to talk about anthropology, but mm -hmm. psychology, I think psychology approaches it, at least the way I'm used to. So like, I'm, I'm good with it, but follow somebody on Twitter who does it from an economic standpoint and I saw his course on program evaluation and I was like oh this is definitely nothing I teach on program evaluation I don't think it's as I don't want to say unstructured as open as the way you describe you approaching it but it's definitely not the way that he describes it as like 
evaluation is an RCT. And gosh, no, I, I'm not sure I'll ever end up doing, well, I probably will do an RCT at some point in my life, but I'm not actively sinking to do that, right? Right. <laughs> so like, how did you reconcile that bad experience you had in evaluation to like going for this opportunity and sounds like having a good experience come out of it? Yeah. Well, you know, I think like, it's interesting. And like, I even, I could even apply that question, not only to that project, but also to my entire career, because that project, be, I think because the branch chief at the time was really an ally and, and really a strong advocate for this approach. And I was fairly new. This is my first full-time position out of grad school. But I think that, I don't know how the stars aligned in such a way that there was space and openness to approach something differently even though there was a little bit of like uncertainty around whether or not this would be effective. But I, you know, one of the things being so fresh out of grad school, I was, you know, my training anthropology was so fresh and front and center for me that it was really easy for me to bring that to the work and, and use that as a guide. And so a lot of the things that I did, even when, at the time I was with Karna LLC, a lot of the things that, that I did at the time within that firm were really bringing a really robust, rigorous approach to qualitative data analysis, which wasn't something that was practiced within, within, within the firm more broadly. So it's kind of something that I built from within the firm, I built within the firm. And so I think just, you know, one of the things that happened over my career was that I, as I worked on more projects, I realized that there was a tendency sometimes to kind of come in with a more rigid approach. And so that was a tension that I felt and I pushed back against to varying degrees, but I felt myself kind of pushing back against it less over time, over the course of my career. And that's one of the things that I really wanted to renew in my work when I launched Coactive Change is approaching work in a really open exploratory way rather than saying, you know, I have a set approach and that's how I do evaluation. So you found who the, the primary stakeholders, your quote bosses or whatever, were the ones that were trying to get a more rigid report approach. And that's what you felt like you needed to step away from. Yeah. I mean, it was a combination of both the, the firms that I worked at and then also the clients. So really I felt like it was coming from all directions. So not one individual, not one organization. So the rigidity is one thing that led you to coactive change to starting that. Is there anything else that like, you know, spurred you to want to start your own business and own consulting firm? Yeah, I mean, so one of the other things that as you know, my background in anthropology, my research and all of my all of my coursework really much focused on social movements and social justice organizing. And I really wanted that to be front and center in my work. And a lot of me starting my practice was about reclaiming my time and my knowledge and my labor to do the work that I was really passionate about. Because for me, you know, social justice organizing is something I live and breathe every day. My partner <laughs> gets very annoyed with me because, you know, he says, you never turn it off. And I'm like, you're right, I don't. But it's, it's, it's who I am. And I feel so privileged and fortunate to be in a space where I can do work that I'm passionate about and get paid for it because there's so many people who don't have that. So I just, I feel so grateful, but yeah, for me, it was about really centering my social justice work 
and really being a whole person because now I have the complete agency or a great deal of agency (laughs) to engage in organizing both like unpaid labor and then also paid labor and really just make that the center of everything that I'm engaged in to the extent that I want. And by organizing, you mean like social justice organizing, uh, like activism type organizing? Yeah. So for me, um, yeah. So for example, I'm engaged in some organizing work here in Denver around abolition. I'm a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. So I'm working with the socialist feminist group as well. And I um, was formerly on the Reimagining Police Task Force here in Denver that emerged from the protests and organizing here around police violence and brutality and murder, the ways that the just in the ways that the prison industrial complex has just really just decimated uh, Black, Brown, Indigenous communities, LGBTQ plus communities. And so it's, it's something that I, I really wanted to prioritize having time for. And so that's something that I'm doing as well now. That sounds awesome. And I love I just love hearing from people who are talking about how they reject the notion of like, we can't advocate for the types of organizations that we work with as evaluators, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I'm such a big proponent, like, we should be advocating for them. Why would we be working with them if we didn't believe in the work that they were doing as being Mm -hmm. important work? You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like that. Men, it's like that mindset of, oh, well, we can be objective, we can be value free, which is completely false. And it's, you know, it's the everything that we do is there's bias and there's our values are embedded in everything that we do. And so, why not make that explicit rather than act as if, you know, none of that is actually intervening in our practices and what we do. Exactly. Exactly. So we're a great pivot to talking about social justice, <laughs> kind of the main topic for today. And uh, I, I'm really excited to talk about this. My students, a few of them came in with a social justice interest and background. One of our projects is actually working with our one of our local police departments. Okay. Think about like com- police community relations and and so social justice has kind of been forefront in our mind throughout the entire semester. But I, I don't have that background. I don't, I didn't get that training. I didn't get that. Mm-hmm. I didn't have that lived experience that kind of, uh, I don't know how to word that. That's not the right way to word it. But I, I never thought about it enough, right? In the last couple mm-hmm. of years, especially I have been, and it's been very important, but I don't have the background. So I'd love mm-hmm. to learn more about how you incorporate social justice in your work. How does that exemplify in your practice? What, like, I'm guessing there's just a different thought process of yours if when you're doing evaluation than, for instance, the way I've been doing it and the way I was trained. And I've been trying to think differently about from how I was trained as a very applied research type approach to evaluation mm-hmm. and trying to think more about, you know, how I can approach my work in, um, with a different set of values mm-hmm. than that. So I'm really eager to talk about this, but maybe before we launch into like how it relates to evaluation, how, how do you maybe define like, what is social justice? What does that mean? It sounds like you bring in kind of an abolitionic perspective, but I think mm-hmm. There's more to it than that. So what comes to mind when you think about social justice or how might you explain that to somebody? Well, one of the first things I'll say that really it's about imagining a different, for me, it's about imagining a different world, right? Imagining 
a more just, loving, liberatory, abolitionist world. And so, which is, so a lot of it is about imagination because it's so difficult for us to imagine a different response. Like, for example, the ways that we respond to harm with punishment, like that's ingrained from I mean, the prison industrial complex, then also like it's integrated in our interpersonal relationships. And so it's, it's, it's so, uh, it's so embedded. And so a lot of it for me is trying to create space to imagine something different. And then in terms of specific to evaluation and research, even for me, and this dates back to my training in anthropology is about shifting the ways that we practice evaluation away from this tendency to study down towards studying up. And so there is a great deal of anthropological literature that talked about and critiqued the way that anthropology was uh, very much like a part of colonialism and a part of this uh, tradition of studying the other, of studying other down, other people, the other, right? And so part of like the, the people within anthropology that I spent time with and like the tradition that I really uh, found myself in really focused on studying up, right? So, and also doing work here based in the United States. And so for me, social justice value, like using that lens through evaluation is also about bringing that to the forefront and to, to challenge who has the power and who is making the decisions about the evaluation questions, the evaluation and design, and then also who owns, right? The products and deliverables and, and the knowledge that's produced through evaluation. So all of those things really come up for me. And I realize that's very long-winded. <laughs> no, that, I mean, brings up so many things to mind as, as you're talking. Um, I, I'm wondering, did you watch that AEA session on, I think is futures thinking? Mm, no. Because that, that's one of the first thing that comes to mind of like, uh, I, I don't remember uh-huh. who did it. It was an AA session for the virtual experience, but it, it's asking us to think about what are the various possible mm. features for like, for example, a, a program rather than thinking, here's our linear logic model. Here's our linear yeah. theory of change. Sure. It might <laughs> be flexible over time, but like, this is it right? Versus thinking like, what are the possibilities of what that theory of change could be? And then the possibilities of that future based on that. And through that, it, sh- it shifts how we think about evaluation. And I, I don't, there's a video clip in it that I thought was really interesting. And it basically thinking about those possible futures of mm-hmm. society, what it could look like if we approached it like, uh, it was a really cool little exercise that uh, some people put on and I, I don't remember enough about it. But I feel like this is kind of where the field is shifting a little of like not thinking evaluation is surveys and interviews and focus groups and RCTs and X, Y, Z, right? But rather, how can we, I don't know, just expand our thinking about what evaluation can look like and not come from like a top-down approach as me as the evaluator coming in saying, uh, I think this would be the best versus how might you try to answer this question and is that the right question and is you know are you on the trajectory that you want to be with your organization Mm -hmm. and what might a better future look like for this organization yeah yeah I agree I mean there's so much great there's so much great work that's happening that really speaks to that I think like speaking of AEA 
Giovanni, their session on restorative validity was really uh, amazing and a great um, example of kind of questioning the rigidity that I was talking about earlier through like, okay, if we stick to a protocol and we have the set Q&A script and we don't deviate off of it, like whose knowledge and interest are we centering when we do that? And, and what are we, what missed opportunities? Like what additional learning and insights are we just, are we pushing off to the side because we have, you know, we as evaluator and like also by way of that, the funder, whomever is um, in control of the work saying that this is what matters. And, and then, you know, I think like a lot of the thinking around that for me comes from abolition because that's a big framework that I hear abolitionists really highlight is, is needing to think about or encouraging us to imagine a different future and like really acknowledging the present systems and how they constrain us in so many ways to, to not imagine something different. So I'm gonna have to sit on that for a second. Like, <laughs> I mean, I know this is me with my white woman, female, cisgendered background coming into this conversation, but I, you know, like I, it freaks me out to think about mm-hmm. this, you know, to, to shift my perspective and think mm-hmm. like that, you know, it, 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 I, gosh, I was sitting down yesterday to try to intention plan as I, one of my friends would call it, like plan my intentions for the year. And gosh, I, I got stuck. Mm. I just, I couldn't think like that. I couldn't think like what possible future might I envision for what 2020 will look like for Dana Wanzer? Like, I don't know. I I mean, part, there's so many unknowns that it just kind of freaks me out for the first part, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, COVID-19 freaks me out. Other unknowns are freaking me out. And, uh, you know, it's just like, gosh, like, I, I don't know. I just, all of it freaks me out a little bit, but I know like, that's what we need to be doing. Does that come, like, does anything come up of like how I can get out of this, like, freak out mm. mode when I think about this? Or is this normal? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think like one of the things that I um, I lean into so much now is my relationships and friendships with other people. So I have, you know, I have deep friendships with both fellow consultants who I'm partnering with on projects and then also like comrades I've connected with through organizing And I have, you know, a number of like Zoom or phone conversation holds on my calendar, like weekly, monthly with these people. And it's so, Hmm. it's so important and so critical for me because I need space to share my fears and my anxiety or when I notice something that makes me feel uncomfortable or I notice something that I think is oppressive or violent that's happening to me or to someone else and to have space to process because this work is really scary and we can't do it alone. We need to have thought partners. And so, um, you know, there are folks like like Kai Fiorelli Hedrick work together at Vantage. Um, She's a really close friend and thought partner. Um, Magenta Freeman, she's a comrade I met through abolition organizing. We have uh, like a number of like really great, beautiful conversations. And uh, Kai, I'm partnering with Vidya right now and Kai on a project. And so like Vidya called me in on something around uh, a response that really like, that that I provided that really exemplified urgency. And so, you know, it's so important to have people 
who call to call you in and to think through all of this with and struggle with people and and also to think creatively about how we're integrating yeah all of all of um integrating really into social justice right and uh, into our work and doing everything we can to dismantle and disrupt systems of oppression that we you know inevitably perpetuate ourselves yeah that's such a good point about how we should be doing this in relation like I, I think again this is you know my white background why white culture speaking out but like I always feel like I have to do things on my own I feel mm -hmm. like I am supposed to be independent that I'm supposed to do this by myself and I have been um in community and a few mm -hmm. things but I always it's like I forget about it I forget that that is available to mm -hmm. me as an option to like get through that type of thing it's not it's not my default yeah. yet you know and I, I don't know if it'll ever be that default but trying to work at uh noticing like I'm noticing these things I'm noticing the discomfort yeah I guess that's a step forward that um, is but uh, it's yeah that is yeah noticing that's that's huge I mean I'm I'm working with a, a coach who works with black women working in social justice arenas and I've been working with them for I guess eh, like four months and they're amazing uh Matisse they're based in Atlanta and you know one of the things we were share, sharing a lot of things that I was struggling with and uh we were talking about how critical it is for me for us to to notice things and then like ask questions in response right so and to not push what you notice away, because that has happened in my past, in my career. I've noticed things mm -hmm. and I knew like in my body, I knew something was oppressive or violent and I pushed it down. And so I'm really striving to practice like not pushing that down anymore and, um, and, and acknowledging when you feel scared and when you feel anxious and all of that, which comes through this work. I'm curious, do you, do you do any like somatic practice in that regard? I don't, but I literally just bought my grandmother's hand. So I am very eager to, 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 to get into that. So no, but ask me again in six months or a year, hopefully the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, nice. Do you? I uh, started doing a little bit, uh, a little bit. I don't. Uh, okay. So I've been working with Libby Smith. She's been doing breath work weekly. And so I've been doing those. Oh, right. Taking a little break personally from that. But I don't know. I'm not entirely sure if she would call breath work somatic practice. I th okay. I think. Or rather, I think she's been bringing in some more somatic work into our breath work. Because uh, the breath work is very much just the breathing. Yeah. You're supposed to kind of notice what's going on kind of body wise and let it out if you need to. But we have been incorporating some more somatic work. And then I did a, a, a breath work uh, that she said I should attend that somebody okay. else did. And that incorporated a lot of somatics of uh, much more body work movement involved with what you're doing. And oh, it feels good. But I, it, there's still that disconnect that I'm still grappling with. Yeah. Of like translating that to like the work that I do mm. like, I, I I get in the moment and that like for that evening I'll feel really good and like uh maybe I'll have a breakthrough and I've had some really uh, incredible breakthroughs through doing it but um wow. but then the next day I'm kind of like back to where I was you know mm -hmm. so like maybe I just need to be doing it on a much more regular basis but I think it's just I need to work on being more intentional about like 
every single thing I do, which requires much more pausing in everything I do. Which, yes. Again, not my default. It's just kind of go, 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 get things done. And gosh, I need to slow down. Yeah. Well, that's that's the urgency that is our white supremacist culture. And it's, it's so exactly. difficult. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, like, and that was one of the other things that I really wanted to be intentional about with coactive change is in the past, I've worked in settings where it was go, 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 right? Just responding with so much urgency. And if a uh, you know, client needed something, it was drop everything. And um, I'm really like deferring to the power that others held over us. And so that was something else that I really wanted to commit to is to create plenty of spaciousness to have reflective moments and to think through what I was doing with other people, right? And in partnership, because if we're just constantly moving, going from project to project, where's the space to like, think about, okay, what assumptions am I really centering in what I'm doing? What biases are coming up? Like, in what ways am I actually perpetuating violence and harm? Or what ways am I not disrupting? Like, in what ways am I being silent in the face of that? And so we need space. We need space to do that work. Yeah, I, I've been knowing for the past few years since I went out of academia how much more of that space I needed. Like when I was in grad school, I, I don't know if I just said outside of academia, I'm still in okay. academia. But once when I was in grad school, I felt like I always had that space. I had so much flexibility and I was efficient enough that I would have moments where I could really pause and think about what I'm doing and reflect in maybe not as intentionally as I'd like. And now that I know better, like as, as much as I think I should have been doing, but I had more space for that. I'm now in a po position where like, I feel like I've got very little space for that. So I'm curious, mm. like, what does creating that space look like for you? And I, I, I recognize that may not be the way that everybody should be doing it or whatever, but I'm curious, like, particularly as a, uh, a one woman consulting firm, right? Uh, you, mm -hmm. you partner with a lot of people, but you're, you're solo. Like yes. how, what, is, what does that look like for you? And how do you, how do you, I'm not, I don't, I'm not cultivate, but how do you protect that space? Mm -hmm. So I'm one of those people that really relies on their calendar. <laughs> so I yeah, create <laughs> blocks for walking Daisy, the dog and eating and working out and things like that. So for me, what I'm doing now is I'm blocking time. So one of the new things that I'm trying out is blocking my entire Friday for praxis, for reflexivity for reading for all of those things and so for me that works of course I do have a tendency to add things to those holds and so that's something that I'm still struggling yeah. with honestly I probably will always struggle with I think yeah I've, I've tried the same thing uh but then like I get to those moments and it's just like okay what do I do with myself now I've been toying with the idea of both what your like big blocks of yeah. time, right? That is protected time for maybe whatever I need it to be at the moment, um, but no meetings, yes. right? That's the big thing. No meetings with other people. But then um, we're about to launch into a project where we're going to be conducting a lot of interviews with mm -hmm. people. I'm really excited about that. But I, I think what I'd like to do, and I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this, is like block the time, especially right 
after each interview Mm -hmm. to be like, I'm not meeting with anybody. This is my time to reflect on everything just happened. Journal, reflect. And I'll I'll say this. I, I come to this thought process as a very quantitative researcher. So I think your anthropology background will tell me like, yeah, you're supposed to be doing that in the first place. <laughs> your qualitative no. background. Um, <laughs> but like, does that like, so I've been thinking like after every class, like I have, I, yes. I teach Tuesdays and Thursdays and I've done it 2.20. Okay, so block until three o'clock, 40 minutes every Tuesday, Thursday to reflect on how those two classes I just taught one. Yeah, I, yes, I totally agree. That's something else that I, um, been, I was really, it's something, that's another way where I, um, it's something that I've been wanting to do, but I'm trying to figure out like, how do I actually do that on my calendar? It feels like a lot of like, well, a lot of holds, but maybe it's a practice of like, not scheduling something when you have that space. But yeah, I think absolutely, because it's, I think it's important to have both dedicated space like on a weekly or monthly basis but then also in the moment because it's not just about like oh on this Friday I do this work it's something that needs to be embedded in your practice and so if you have a full calendar with back-to-back interviews or sessions then (laughs) when are you actually really processing yet exactly and yeah, and trying to balance that with the my need to be available to my students at the same time, right? Like, mm-hmm. I want to block that time right after class, but that's often a time that people want to be meeting with me because they're also not in class any longer. And I, I mean, this is me needing to set boundaries, but... Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too much because I really want to talk more about like how this like looks in your practice, like how this is actually happening in evaluation. Um, yeah. so, uh, one, let me just say thank you. That was really helpful for me, uh, bearing my soul to the entire uh, few listeners of this podcast. <laughs> uh, but maybe so shifting to like how this looks in evaluation. Yeah. What are some things that come up for you when you think about how this works in your evaluation? Yeah. Practice? So one of the things that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about and working on the past, I guess since I started Coactive Change, is the structures and processes that precede an evaluation project even beginning or any consulting project beginning. And so what I mean by that is both thinking critically about the ways that I respond to RFPs, RFQs, LOIs, and so on, And then also thinking critically about the contracts that I produce to do work, because I think both of those sites really are really like really intense places where we see capitalism and paternalism showing up and so, and white supremacy showing up. And so one of the things, like for example, one of the things that I've been noticing is that a lot of the RFQs, RFPs, LOIs calling for either DEIJ or JEDI or anti-racism consulting, I've noticed that a lot of them have really small budgets and short timelines, and they're asking for BIPOC-led consultancies to do this work. And so there are a lot of problems with that. One, the work, like laying out a, a really short timeline to not only assess Um, the culture of an organization, but then also to build a plan that will really address all of the ways that that organization is perpetuating violence and harm is is unrealistic. 
And then also there's a long tradition of taking advantage of black, brown, indigenous labor and knowledge. And so that's, that's also problematic from that perspective. And so one of the things that, and so I was noticing that in, right, in these calls and talking with Kai about this and we decided, um, so this is an example of like leaning into, right, a relationship, a deep relationship, a deep friendship. Uh, we decided to, to write a one page addendum to pair with proposals to explain why this was problematic and say that we are you know, eager to engage in this work with you, but we wanted to elevate this, elevate this tension. And to, you know, even if we don't end up working together, we hope that this informs your future, your future work. And so, because at the same time, one of the things that we spoke to in the addendum is we understand, especially for smaller nonprofits, they might have really small budgets, right? And so there's a tension between wanting to support them and doing this work, but then also not wanting to devalue our work and the work of fellow consultants. So kind of calling all of that out and, and laying it out on paper felt really great. And we've, we've received like a really positive response to that. So that's an example of really bringing this lens to the work even before a project begins. So when you're doing that, you're still, if I mm-hmm. get this right, you're still responding to the call as they put out, right? That you're well, still- Well, we actually- Or no. not, because I'm wondering, are you pushing <laughs> yes. back and saying like, no, we'll do this, but yeah. you're gonna have to double your timeline and double your budget or whatever, Yeah, right? yeah, we are, we are proposing okay. something that's far less than what they're asking for. Yeah, we're oh, saying- Oh, so you still work within their timeline and budget, but you offer far less of what you're gonna do within that. Well, it's been far less and we have proposed over the budget that they laid laid out. But then it, it wasn't just, and um, so it's, it, was, it was the proposal that we submitted, but then also once we had an interview, we pushed back even further to have more conversations about to say like, okay, are there any, um, are there any deadlines that are driving this timeline? And I'm like, oh, well, no, there's not. I'm like, okay, well, that opens up that conversation, right? Yeah, so we are- So you're, you're using it as a way to get your foot in the door so that you can expand the conversations and make sure that your work and the work that's being done is being valued properly. Yeah, but then we are we are proposing less and I'm thinking of those two, the two cases where we did this, it's proposing less and slightly more than the budget and then a longer timeline. And, and, but this is still translated to, to work for you. you Cause I, the, when you started bringing this up, I was like, heck yeah. But also like, oh no, <laughs> like you're going to like lose out on so many opportunities, which is a horrible line that I think as consultants, you know, yeah. consultants have to, to toe, right. Of, yes. well, I need the work, but also I need to be valued for the work that I'm doing. Yeah. Um, so has, this is, it sounds like it's been working out you doing this and, yeah, so we've done it twice and both resulted in an interview. One resulted in work. So we're working with them now and one, we were not selected. But um, okay. both of the interviews, the nonprofits expressed like deep appreciation, respect for what we wrote. So that was really positive. And, um, well, and I'm guessing you're also being selective in who you're responding to 
RFPs from, yes. right? Like, yeah, exactly, exactly. Because, you know, for the two that we responded to, they did express that they felt that this was the first step in a journey. And so we felt, okay, this feels like a group of people who are going to be or might be receptive to what we're sharing. And they are wanting to to really put in the time, even though at the same time, the way that the call was framed, it felt more like bounded, right? right. So it was kind of right. reading between the lines, listening, looking for the words that they're using and not using. Are they explicitly talking about race or are they kind of using words that kind of gloss over <laughs> our code words? Right. <laughs> yeah. So the code words would be kind of a hint of maybe we don't apply or is it a, or is it something that you still potentially consider? Yeah, it's, I, so I've had this conversation with a lot of, a lot of like thought partners in, in my life and where I'm at now in my career, I want to work with people who are ready to, to be explicit and are ready to be challenged and want to be challenged. And so and that's just where I personally am. And I think everyone's, other people can be in different places, but I want to work with people who are, you know, really wanting to be, really wanting to be challenged and really wanting to examine the ways that they maybe, maybe they, there are ways that they disrupt, right? Since repression, but then maybe there are ways that they actually perpetuate it. And so really kind of wanting to like, look at themselves in really complex whole ways and their organizations. So you've got the proposal, you know, you've got the project, we're accepted, right? What, what then does the, the evaluation look like? And how might it differ from an evaluation that does not have this social justice lens and approach to what it's yeah. doing? Well, one of the first things that I'm really working to do is to kind of get away from long project timelines, because one of the things that I'm really trying to spend a lot more time doing that I haven't had time in the past when I worked with other firms is to have a lot of time on the front end to do a lot of reading and observing and engaging with people and meetings and whatever spaces exist where I can get to know people to really learn the context before um, we jump in and build an evaluation framework or a plan or a scope for how to approach, you know, like the work. And so for me, that is really, really important. And so there's a big project that Kai, Vidya and I are working on where it, you know, it, it was going to be a two and a half year project, but the initial contract that we built is just for four months or five months. And so, because we've said, okay, this early phase is still very exploratory in many ways. And so we can't know what the whole two and a half years are going to look like. So that's one thing that I've been really trying to practice and people have been really receptive to it. Like it's, it's made sense to people like, yeah, that makes sense. Like we need to really learn the context first before we can build a plan because we build plans and they shift all the time. Right. Anyway. And so. Right. I was reading this interesting article on like project management and how mm-hmm. um, how often the way we think about project management fails because we don't think about the unforeseen things that are going to crop up like 
for instance, COVID-19 happening, right? And I think mm-hmm. having those short multi-phase projects where you only specify, specify a phase at a time, right? You might have yeah. a glimpse of an idea of what the next phase might look like, yeah. but to not set it in stone, I think makes so much sense for the way I think... I think there are times and places for those three, five-year evaluations, perhaps, but I, 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 I don't like getting pigeonholed either. Yeah. Like it, it really forces your hand. And it's like, well, you get to a point where like this just doesn't work. Yeah. And if you've got a funder who's like, well, nope, you gotta stick with what you did. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to do that. Like this is not gonna be helpful to anybody. So I like that, uh, that thought of uh, that, that approach to thinking about the projects. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can have a commitment to working together for two and a half years, yes. right? But then only scope out so far. And that's a that kind of leads into something else that I I'm also actively trying to shift in my practice is kind of getting away from the blinders focus on evaluation questions. And so, and what I mean by that is I've worked on projects in the past where the focus was the evaluation questions and nothing else mattered. And so I think it's another, it's a big equity issue because if we're saying, okay, so first off, who's again, values and interests are we centering in that, right? So uh, we're saying, okay, these are the evaluation questions. This is what matters. So what if, as you're engaging in data collection, you start to realize that something else is going on and you ignore that because you've pick these evaluation questions, you could be ignoring really important information. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's something else that I've been really trying to to shift in my practice is to, to give space for all of that to shift. So by centering evaluation questions, you mean rather we should ha- be more uh, flexible throughout the evaluation of what those questions might look like? And I'm guessing spending w- much more time at the forefront thinking about, well, whose questions are these? Who, who, who would the answers benefit most? Mm-hmm. Um, are these the right questions? Those types of things. Yeah, exactly. And, and also kind of decentering clients or funders and designing those questions. And instead, really centering those who are traditionally the objects, quote unquote, of evaluation and research, right? And so really like leaning into a range of stakeholders, lived experiences and expertise to design evaluation. So this is like kind of getting into more participatory approaches, right? But we can still like, I think there's many ways that we can embed that in our practice, even if it's not, you know, like a full scale participatory evaluation project. And one of those is is thinking, bringing as many people as you can to the table to build evaluation frameworks or plans, and then also the questions, and then allowing those to shift across a project and not feeling like, okay, these are the questions and we're not going to deviate from them. You mentioned like how you're, you're more centering the clients as a, not the clients, the, 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 well, clients of the program, for example. Yeah. So not, not centering the client. So, so I, well, I use the word partner in my work because I, I am trying to conceptualize my work with those who pay me as a partnership. So I'm trying to kind of get away from the client consultant frame. But um, so for me, I mean, it's more, it's, it's about being more than clients or partner centered. <laughs> it's about um, really centering 
those who are program participants or program recipients. We're talking right. about nonprofits, grantees, if we're talking about foundations. So it's about centering what matters to them and the questions that so they So when have. you're in that yeah. initial like project formulation phase that seems to be much more expanded of a timeline when you're really, you know, on the ground, learning about the organization and getting the context. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you have a couple ways you might approach getting their feedback. It could be very observational, but it could also be very intentional. Is that, am I getting that correct? And what, what made you, makes you decide to go one way or the other? Mm, I think I, I lean into whatever I can, and it's probably, it varies project to project, depends on who my partners are and like where they are in terms of like how far along they are in terms of supporting participatory mm. approaches and depends. So yeah, the first step is first step is me learning the context th- through conversations, one-on-one conversations or group conversations, document review, things like that are also really helpful. Yeah. And so like leaning into as much as I can basically. And so that is definitely the first step. And then and then even if I'm working on a project where it's like, for example, the project, the big DHAT project that I worked with when I was working as a contractor with CDC, the team was comprised of myself, various CDC scientists, and then also the president of AIDS United. And so, and then also project officers within uh, CDC. And so the questions that we had shifted also in response to what we learned through the evaluation. And so in that way, even though it wasn't a participatory project, I really tried to hone in on listening to what I was learning through grantees and using that to shift our questions to say like, hey, we're hearing from all the grantees that this other question is missing from our work. And we need to get at this. So. Cool. That makes sense. So then how do you think the methods in a social justice focused evaluation differ as well? Or is it? I'm, well, I'm, I don't know. Does it? <laughs> yeah, um, I don't I don't I mean, I don't think so. I think. I don't, yeah, I don't think so. I think the methods that we can use in social justice oriented evaluation can also be used in other types of evaluation. Um, Because I think like, I honestly think a social justice lens can map onto all types of evaluation, right? Like if we use that lens. I always think of like that the hourglass, right? Of like how evaluation differs from research. And it's like the methods and design is like where there's the greatest overlap. So I just, I went into the question thinking, oh, it's it's just maybe a different frame of how you approach it, but I, I, yeah. they're all social social research methods that we're using, I would guess. Right, right, right. And I mean, it's, you know, I mean, like one thing I, I will, I've noticed is that I think like in terms of methodology, like more emergent approaches, like I, I seem to see them less, but that, that doesn't mean that they're, you know, unique to a social justice approach. And then thinking of like the end of the evaluation mm-hmm. of like reporting of per- perhaps like the, the age old question of whether you provide recommendations or not, like <laughs> yeah. how, what, what does that look like for you? Oh, uh, so one of the things that I'm, 
something else that I'm really actively working on is, is getting away from big annual reports, right? That are like 40 pages long, like, you know, the classic sit on a shelf. So I'm really doing a lot of real-time learning in partnership with my partners to just to show which, and, and for those I've worked, who I've worked with, they have really loved it and really appreciated it to say like, we can really create space to talk about what we're learning in the moment and reflect on it. And then like, use that conversation to inform your practice and what is um, happening next for you and your organization and your work. And so for me, many, many ways, like learning and reporting is happening throughout my work rather than just at the end. I was, and, you know, like I was just talking with a partner we're in the middle of contracting and they really want like the annual report because their funder they require right. Right. And so like, we're going to do that because I know that that's something that they need, but then we're also having these reflective real-time learning conversations throughout. And so, but that's like, that's a biggie for me because I want what I, I want the work that we do to really be able to shape my partner's work. And then also for them to have the space to really think critically about their work. Right. Well, and if we want organizational learning to happen, like a big <laughs> annual report at the end is not going like you need real time feedback. Right. And yes. that's not going to happen with a one time report at the end of a year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then the the other thing that I think is is really important, but this is it's not just important for the reporting phase, but also important throughout as we're analyzing data is really like leaning into the knowledge and expertise of program participants, community members um, to both share like learnings and get their feedback on like what, what we've, what insights we've generated, but then also, I mean, I like, I love to do participatory work. And so I love to analyze data in partnership with stakeholders but that's also a heavy lift and so that's not always that's not always feasible because the last thing you want to do is to push a participatory approach or an empowerment approach on people because then you're just doing like like creating the harm that you're trying to like fight right by right. imposing right. an approach on people mm. Yeah. So is that I hadn't I hadn't thought of it as like a, a way of perpetuating harm by forcing that on people, but that makes so much sense. Cuz I think of like David Fetterman, I think uh reading something of his, it was like a hypothetical respond to an RFP and people expected him to respond using empowerment evaluation and he didn't because he's like I don't think this situation warrants it. Mm -hmm. It's like he's the person who always does empowerment <laughs> evaluation, but yeah. very intentional about when he does it. Right, right. And that's like, that's why it's so important to learn the context in which you're working, because it's like, you have to adapt and every project, you know, requires something a little different. So I want to be mindful of time. We're running out of our, our time. And I'm having <laughs> such a great time talking with you. Is there anything that I didn't cover about your approach to social justice evaluation that is like really important that we should share? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, we talked about the importance of having community 
and having deep relationships. So that's that's a biggie. And I don't think I can think of anything. Well, and I, I like the the reframe of clients as partners, right? That was actually kind of sort of the topic of my dissertation was thinking about how the work that we do as evaluators are similar to what researchers have started doing, which they call research practice partnerships. I'm like, oh, I think a lot of evaluators yeah. do that. <laughs> and thinking of our the people we work with as partners, as opposed to clients, as opposed to stakeholders, it shifts the way mm-hmm. we approach the work we do with them. And it's very much more, mm-hmm. okay, with the partner is building relationships. It's building um, community with them as opposed to stakeholders. It's a very top-down approach of like, I'm going to do this with you and maybe I'll bring in some participatory elements, but yeah, perhaps not. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a process and like my projects are not always, you know, like they're varying degrees of participatory and collaborative. And so I feel like it's just, it's a constant, yeah, it's a constant, um, like assessing where people are at and then pushing, right? But then also being cognizant of like the context and not imposing something, but like really creating space to have a conversation with people to create something that feels good for them. And something else that actually I did think of something that I've been uh, really struggling with, which is like, I'm a socialist and I, you know, I realize as a consultant, like I am exchanging services, my labor, right, for a fee. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, I, I really, and it, it just, there's a tension there, right? Like that is, yeah. it's, it's a part of it. And so there's this thing where you're simultaneously trying to disrupt, but then you're also operating within, yeah. you know, this, you know, a neoliberal capitalist system, which values individualism and urgency. And there's so many things that are just taken that just like, I don't know if taken for granted is the right word, but they just seem like the norm. And so it's so things like ownership, right, or authorship over products and deliverables. And so, um, which is a tension that I'm grappling with right now. And but what's really neat, what I've noticed is like when I bring this up to with people, with partners, there's openness to actually have conversations about it, right? To talk about like co-ownership mm-hmm. and co-authorship, even though it feels like a little nerve wracking to, to even have that conversation because we, you know, we, right. we worry like, oh, will I lose the work if I bring this up? And so that's like something that I've been thinking a lot about and trying to be very intentional about, about pushing back in that way and trying to disrupt. And, but I, I lean into my like good friends and colleagues to, to do that because doing it alone is <laughs> yeah uh, tough. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm curious, like where maybe not end up, but maybe one way you start relieving that tension because it's that's somewhat been coming up for me as well of um, okay. I'm a big proponent of open science, which is, you know, okay. doing things in a way that promotes things publicly without being behind a paywall, without being something that somebody has mm-hmm. to pay for, that you're sharing the science publicly. And I'm a huge proponent of it. I'm seeing some ways about how open science as a 
broad thing may be problematic. And I think that's a different conversation. But I've been experiencing this personal tension of like, I do a lot of work that I just put out for free. Yeah. This podcast is one, my blogging is one, my research is basically one, although that's a lot of it's behind a paywall. But I I put it also up in a way that's publicly available for free. I do webinars all the time. They're all free. Mm -hmm. And yes, I'm salaried and all that stuff. But and, and yes, I do get recognition in some regard for that work. But at the same time, I'm like, should I be trying to get paid for this? And like, should I be getting more recognition for this work? Should I be fighting for more pay for this work? Because like that is a one one symbol of, of recognition. Right. And like yeah. I'm personally grappling with all of that. I don't have any questions or answers right there, but like, <laughs> I'm like, should I take that webinar I did for free and put it behind a paywall? Because then I start making some more money and like, I'm the only breadwinner yeah. in my family and it's not a bad thing, but you know, I'm mm-hmm. constantly trying to think of like, how can I help set us up for success long-term in this capitalist society? <laughs> it's that's so real. I mean, that is, um, yeah. I mean, I've had, I went with Vidya Khan and I were having this conversation literally this morning. <laughs> so it's very top of mind. <laughs> nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, and well, we don't need to go down that rabbit hole. Maybe we can yeah. save that for another conversation. Yeah. Um, I usually end with like uh, a question that I um, lovingly stole from Code Switch. They always ask like, what song is giving you life? I don't know if you kind of saw the parallels <laughs> with that, but um, uh, I usually end with like, what is giving you life and evaluation right now? What's giving you life? Oh, so I mean, I think honestly, it's it's like, this is repeating what I've already said, but it's those deep friendships and relationships with colleagues um because i yeah i mean like that has given me strength and that's just given me so much energy to disrupt and to write one page addendums and like have a conversation with a partner to say hey let's talk about co-authorship and like i I don't think i could have i think pushing back in that way is for me, it feels so much more effective when I'm doing it in partnership with other people, especially because those other people have so much knowledge and like, they're so amazing and we're stronger together. And I think collective, and this like bleeds into my organizing, collective organizing and action is the way forward. And, you know, we're not, we're not going to get there working independently from, from my perspective. So that's what it is for me. Thank you. I, I have very much loved this entire conversation. It's been so great getting to know you better and really grappling with this important conversation that I think more of evaluators should be having. So thank you so much. I appreciate that. Uh, To wrap up, if people want to get in contact with you, what is the best way that they can find you? So they can follow me on Twitter, Aisha Rios 17. So A-I-S-H-A-R-I-O-S 17. And then also my website, www.coactivechange.com. So that's C-O-A-C-T-I-V, coactive. Perfect. And I'll have all those links in the show okay, notes as great. well. So people can just click on that really easily. So, awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Aisha. Thank you, Dana. Have a good one. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. 
please visit the podcast website at evalueland.fireside.fm where you can subscribe to get notified of new episodes and contact us with your questions, comments, or suggestions. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, this has been Evalueland.